Hello and welcome to episode 22 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Irvine, California, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. What's up, Stan? It is me, a California boy. I'm going to go surf, hang 10, ride some waves. Um, yeah, I'm just on a business trip, and I'm, I, I moved the studio with me, so here I am. How did you escape my geofencing on your house went off? <laughs> and I, it freaked me out in the middle of the night. You, you escaped under cover of night, like a Lannister for crying out loud. <laughs> The shock collar got me once or twice, but you just like jump through it and it only hurts once. Right. Also with us here in Chicago, the godfather, Dave Harbarger. This week, it's me, Dave Harbarger Reborn, as the new living guild pack. Last but not least, it's the warden, Zach Culhan. I'm looking into getting the rights to Akon's locked up so we can play that during the intro, but we'll touch on that later. Who? It's a reference for the fans. You don't know Akon? You don't know Akon? Yeah. Hey, Connie Young, Jeezy. Nope. This week, the dive down brings back a fan favorite. It's our sleeve it, believe it, or heave it episode. This is our first look into some of the new decks popping up thanks to War of the Spark. We also start the show off with a breakdown of the notable results from this week's Modern Challenge and Mock's Modern Monthly. Then we wind down with a listener question. But first, some housekeeping. Shout out to friend of the show, Mabin, all the way down in Australia. Thank you for leaving a kind review of the dive down. Very cool to have another fan down under. I will speak on behalf of my co-host to say this weekend was super humbling for all of us. So many of our listeners showed their support by putting some money toward the new dive down Patreon. So this week, we're super excited to shout out all the folks who subscribe to our Patreon so far. We're going to read the names. Um, I'm just going to read people's first names or their Namda, Namda Patreons. Maybe as well. So, uh, Blooch, Blue Cheese is that one. Buff Kips, Cact Trot, Chem is Tree Guy. We got Craig, uh, Diano, Dylan, Evan, Hunter, Jacob, Joshua, Nicole, Scott, Joe, and Train. And then two very special shout outs to our friends on Turn One Thoughtseize. Aaron and Emma, who have both joined separately. We really appreciate your support, guys. Oh, yeah, 100%. This is amazing. Yeah, if you'd like to support the show, you can find our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the dive down, and you too can join the dive down nation. So, um, you know, those of you who haven't joined the Patreon might be wondering, so what is Patreon? Why should I care about it? So Patreon is a way... For you as a listener to give back a little bit to us in exchange for the work that we put into making this podcast. So we all put in a surprising amount of time in order to make this podcast something that you want to listen to. And we generate absolutely no profit. We have no advertisers. We have no sponsors. So that's where you via the Patreon come in. So what you can do is you can choose to give as little as a dollar per episode or as much as you'd like per episode. And there are benefits. You're going to receive at various price points like pins, stickers, signed cards, and there's stretch goals we have listed on the Patreon page as well, like custom tokens, deck boxes, sleeves, play mats. You know, of course, the show is always going to be free, um, but Patreon's really just a way for you to give something back to us in exchange for getting the dive down out to you each week. 
And so our first stretch goal is hiring an editor. And you might ask, you know, why do these guys really want to hire an editor? The podcast already sounds really good. And one reason for that is that either Stan or I are spending a lot of time each week after we record to turn those raw recordings into something that you want to hear on Friday. And it really can take a lot out of us each week. And so what we want to be doing is spending more time playtesting, spending more time engaging with our fans, spending time with our families, creating the content that goes into the each week's episode. And so hiring an editor goes a long way towards that. And that's why it's our first stretch goal and the one we want to hit really quickly. So again, you know, if you like us, please take a little bit of time to check us out on patreon.com slash the dive down, all one word. Uh, we really appreciate all of you. All right, with all that out of the way, let's jump over to Zach with this week's breakdown. So for the breakdown this week, we're trying something a little different that we did last week as well. So anytime there's not going to be a big in-paper event or big online tournament, we're going to move away from reading lists and going over... Uh, you know, where people placed in notable individuals and focused more on spicy decks or interesting things we see propping up. So this won't be a consistent thing. It'll only be when we don't have a big event to talk about. Yeah, like if we don't have an FCG open, don't have a GP, don't have an MC even, you know, there's no reason for us to just read down a big top eight list, right? Exactly. The information's out there and easy to absorb. We want to focus more on that when there's interesting deck lists or interesting players there, and not more when it's just a 5-0 dump. And those are interesting, and that's why we're going to be focusing on them later in our dive down section, but we want to reserve the breakdown for notable events. Yeah, this is your chance to get a sense of the pulse on the format, some new tech that's changing up traditional decks, or new decks that are emerging out of nowhere. Yes, for notable sure. notes for casual folks. So we're going to be looking at the Magic Online Modern Challenge that happened on May 11th. Yeah, so I, I, there's not a single Arclight Phoenix in this whole top 32, you guys. Well, what happened was Cersei's giant crossbow shot all the birds out of the Mm-mm. sky. <laughs> oh, man. And then they came back up. And then they mm. went back down. So yeah. I think that... I don't think this is speaking to the power level of this deck at all. I think people wanted to try all their fun new toys. I don't think Phoenix got any immediate auto-includes from War. And there are other decks that have more cards you get to use. So I, I would be surprised if we saw a trend of Phoenix not appearing again. I, I mean, anything can happen, but I feel like it's a momentary blip, and it'll be back once people have uh, tried out their new stuff and decide what they like and don't like. Yeah, I don't want to spoil what we're going to be talking about, but I feel like control players got a bunch of fun toys, so they're out in full force, and then all the busted, you know, Trani and prisony people got some new toys, and they're out in full force. Oh, yes, and then do. humans is all over the place still. Oh, yeah, because it's very good. So this event was actually won by humans, and the list didn't have too much interesting tech aside from two Frixian Revoker in the sideboard. I kind of like this. It's pretty easy to cast off the mana. It can be like vialed in in response to like the casting of something like one of these all these new planeswalkers that are hitting the battlefield lately. So I think it's a smart include in the sideboard. And it's I think a smart include for a lot of people who are looking toward answers for all the planeswalkers that people are testing right now. So if you're struggling against Karn, this might be something that you can try. So we see in an effect deck make a, a placement here, which is pretty interesting. We haven't seen that for a while. And uh, it, it doesn't seem to have any too many new choices. There's a Teferi Time Raveler on the sideboard, but nothing else too fancy. Nothing too big except for planes. There's no, I don't think there's ever been a planeswalker in. In fact, has Nissa Voice of Zendikar always been here too? Yeah, she's there sometimes. Yeah, she makes an appearance. Huh. But yeah, the the... Teferi in the side is pretty interesting. I think when you have as much Tron out there as we're seeing right now, Infect is a pretty smart choice. What is Teferi doing for this deck, though? 
do you think? Well, I think it makes the opponent operate um, at, at more sorcery speed. So if you can get him down and protect it, then on your next turn, you can attack in like shields are down. Exactly. Basically. They have to kill your stuff on their turn, not your turn, which is very good for you. Yeah. And you're probably probably not casting this card when you need to protect it with one of your 1-1s one either. This is probably coming in against control or mid-range decks. Absolutely. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. It makes it makes the mid-range opponent choose between removing removing the Teferi or removing your creature. Yeah, I could definitely see them bringing this in against like like Scred, a mid-range deck that has a lot of point-based removal because it, it really makes that uh, less of an open game and a lot more of a linear decision. I like it. I mean, I don't know if it's like game breaking or anything like that. I think it's smart, and also I think, in fact, especially if Teferi is useful for it, um, I think it's a perfectly sound choice. Like I said before, uh, in fifth we see Wishtron showing up again. It made it made an appearance last week at the SEG Classic with a playset of Karn the Great Creator. Um, this one has zero Thrag Tusks in the sideboard, so it really doesn't seem to be too worried about gaining more life or dropping the curve uh, post board uh, in terms of uh, mana disruption too much. But it shows up here as well. Yeah, I wonder how much Karn factors into that because Thrag Tusk is five, and you can play Karn minus him and play a one or zero mana artifact that same turn. So I wonder how much credence is given to that. Yeah, just the life gain is so valuable. Uh, we also saw placing here a Red Prison deck, which is piloted by none other than Fluffy Wolf Two, who is a pretty well-known prison streamer. So this one had the full playset of Karn the Great Creator, and it was running Liquid Metal Coating, which is the new hotness in this deck. Explain this to me, Zach, because I see it. And I see what it does, but I'm like, is this really doing enough? It, In my experience, it is. And a big part of that is the deck is up to, I believe, four braids right now. So you can turn lands into artifacts with that and blow them up. And that's oh. very good. It can also hit planeswalkers. It allows you to hit anything with a braid, which is very good. Also, yes. what it can do is the super fun tech that I got beat down with is they can make your land an artifact with that. Then plus one on Karn and your land dies. Why does the plus one on Karn do that? It turns it into a creature with power toughness equal to its converted mana cost. Oh, and lands have zero why, CMC. why did I not get this? Okay, this makes well, sense. By the way, it also is tack against other people's Karns. Yep. So during your upkeep, you turn their Planeswalker into an artifact, and then if you have Karn, the great creator, out, they can't activate any of the abilities on it because it's an artifact. So it lets you go around and have anything with an activated ability when you have Karn, the great creator, out and just hit it on the at the beginning of their turn and if it's a sorcery speed ability they they won't be able to use it also it's like more it's like a flexible like sorcerer's spyglass or something yeah so it does a lot of stuff it lets you like zach said it lets you kill something with kill a land with the plus one it lets you abrade something if you want to but if your opponent has karn the great creator out how do you activate the ability on liquid metal coating Ooh, maybe it's not for other people's cards. Maybe it's just for other people's planeswalkers then, but good good point. I think it has more to do with Zach's point, and I actually did a game against basically Blue Moon that also pulled out a Karn and pulled out Liquid Metal Coating to just start getting rid of my lands. Yeah, it's very real. I don't, I don't know if I totally agree with the four braid. I've played with a list like this, and I found four to be a little clunky, but B5 out, so he's doing at least... Did you guys see this blue-black control deck in 15th? It is wild. It has the new Liliana Dreadhorde General, so Liliana 6. It uh, has two Narset Parter of Veils. It also has a Enter the God Eternals from War of the Spark and Tyrant, <laughs> and Tyrant Scorn. 
Um, so Tyrant Scorn is like a little bit of flexibility. Um, Enter the God Eternals is like, you know, a big high cost removal spell that gets you um, a little bit of added value on the battlefield. It just seems, this deck seems wild. I've seen uh, blue-black control decks running Grave Titan as a finisher in the past, so I could see where you might swap that out and put a Liliana in. It's a similar mana cost, and she's a little less uh, vulnerable to spot removal. Also, what makes this deck kind of interesting to me is that it's also playing with the Narset, Parter of Veils, plus Gyre Reach Sanitarium two-card combo. So once you get your opponent to you know one card in hand and they're top-decking, at the draw step, you get to strip their hand every turn. Ooh, I like that. You guys notice two surgical extraction still in the main deck here. Is this forever? Or are people just still worried about Dredge and Phoenix? I think Tron's really big right now too. Four Field of Ruin main deck. Yeah. That's how you do it. Yeah. I mean Tron's everywhere, so that certainly helps. Especially when Tron's shaving their own surgicals to protect uh, their their lands in the graveyard. Right. So surgical is forever. As long as Tron is around and Field of Ruin. Hmm. Maybe. Yeah, and a deck like this doesn't have to pay the life. It can pay the one black, so I think that makes it a little more reasonable, too, as opposed to something like Phoenix. Yeah, I mean, I think there's still just enough Silver Bullet decks that if you're in a deck that does not feel bad about the card disadvantage from from Surgical Extraction, you can still run it, man. All right, next up, we're going to talk about the Modern Mox Monthly, which is a qualifier for the quarterly Mox playoffs that happen on Magic Online. Or, or so I read, because like you can't honestly tell what any of these actually are, in my opinion. Yeah, and for this, we got the top 32, and there are tons of a spicy meatballs all over this spaghetti result list. <laughs> in the spaghetti of this result list. Man, there's there's just Blast Zone, Karn the Great Creator, Narset Parter, Veils, Teferi Time Traveler, Sahili Sublime Artificer, just everywhere. Yeah, it turns out Planeswalkers with static abilities in addition to activated abilities are pretty good. Pretty good. It's pretty good, especially when they can also gain loyalty. Pretty good. We definitely had trouble deciding this when we were doing the spoiler episode, and so to see it come to fruition a little bit here, already, you know, a couple of weeks into this new modern format is pretty interesting. We're just all putting Planeswalkers in, and uh, a big part of it is the fact that a bunch of them cost three, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, as we keep saying. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of control decks in this. I feel like, you know, they really seem to have been given some kind of boost with these powerful or semi-powerful or useful three-mana Planeswalkers. Right. And then, like, Dovin's Veto, a really nice counter spell, seems to be all over the place as well. Dovin's Veto is very good. Um, I forgot what the first part of that card does, and I put a Chalice on two this weekend to try to get around it. And Hmm. they played it, I went, oh, no, no. They went, okay, yeah, but it can't be countered to... Like, oh, oh, this card's very good. This is very good for you. No, no, no. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. No, 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 but I got no, no, no back. Am I crazy, (laughs) or does the name of Dovin's Veto plus the art on the card almost ruin it for anybody else? Dave, as my fellow Azorius mage, like, is it just me, or is is Dovin's Veto as a card name just super lame? Yeah, it's really lame. (gasps) They should have just called it... Like, Veto. They should have called it (laughs) Negrate, because (laughs) it's better than Negate. Negrate. Veto is kind of a cool card name. They try to avoid doing one-word card names in the can. There's only so many words you can use for stuff like that. That's why they should get deep into portmanteaus. That's become harder in other languages, Dave. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but they don't work in French? No, I, I think they uh, historically do not, actually. Hmm. 
So on. So I've heard about Amulet Titan running Karn the Great Creator and this one of the seven and one decks uh was an Amulet Titan deck with three of them. Why not? You make a bucket load of mana, so he doesn't seem to have this huge wishboard, but it, you know, he can snag in engineered explosives, a worm coil engine, a walking ballista, Tormod's crypt, and of course it has uh, you know, Mycosith Lattice. Karn is just in everything. Why That's is Karn in everything? Oh, we'll talk about that later. Colorless mana. Yeah, it's, and that. It's unbelievable. Well, for generic mana, actually. My apology. <clears throat> That's okay. I forgive you. Karn being in everything, I think, also may explain why we have an uptick in control. Because if you're a player who's taking their time to set up some weird Karn play or to cast a Microsynth Lattice that you're pulling with your Karn, that gives the control player plenty of time to set up a counter spell or an, a better answer. I agree. And as someone who loves four mana Planeswalkers, let me tell you, they are easily countered. So having to tap out on turn four for Karn and they either play a Cryptic or a Remand. I got mana leaked this weekend where it's, oh, I don't have three extra mana. Okay, yeah, it's going to the bin. Well, because you didn't do one plus one plus one equals seven, my friend. No, I did mountain plus mountain plus mountain plus mountain. <laughs> Quad mount. Yeah. <laughs> no. You know, what do you guys... I'm surprised a little bit to see the new Sahili Rai showing up in some of these 7-1 and one and 6-2 and two control decks. And and even like a, an Is It Phoenix deck that went 7-1 and one was running, I think, a singleton. Yeah, misplaced Ginger. Yeah, again. Man, that guy is a grinder. He's good. Yeah, he is. Um, yeah, I guess it just gets value off of all these non-creature spells, the decks cast. So you just build up a board of little artifacties. I had her in a draft deck, and she was certainly valuable there in like a blue-red spells deck. So I can imagine in a in a modern deck with much better and cheaper ca- casting cost spells, uh, it's great. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like a uh, sort of like a young pyromancer with a different payoff. Uh, more like young peasy, I think. But the payoff yeah, I, is a, it's got that extra bonus with the minus two. And did you guys see that uh, Budikov, Magic Online Grinder Extraordinary? He went 7-1 and one with Sramos, even after the London Mulligan's gone, because, you know, even without it, he can win, apparently. Well, Sramos was always a deck, just not a consistent deck. So anyone can run hot. That's half the skill in winning a tournament. Yeah, you're telling me. <laughs> My cold friend. I want to talk again about this Infect list that went 6-2. I wonder if some of the uptick in Infect may have to do with the Karn business I was mentioning earlier, where people are playing these slower control or these slower Karn decks, and the oh, yeah. time that they take to set up, in fact, just kills you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In, in fact, is still the worst matchup for Tron. So if you, you know, I, I saw tons of Tron just in my minimal testing this week, and so, yeah, run in fact. I also saw quite a bit of burn when I was playing my leagues uh, for the decks we tested out. I... I don't know if it's it's clearly not doing too well, but I think that there's an uptake in people playing it. And maybe Infect is just in a better place than Burn right now, which is maybe a weird thing to say, but I don't know. <laughs> I still haven't seen Burn in so long. It's just serious? it's funny. It's funny when you like I have these conversations a lot where it's like people are like, I've seen so much of this deck and I'm like, man, I haven't seen I I never played against Arclight Phoenix on Magic Online ever. <laughs> That's amazing. I think there was a 2-month stretch where I played at least once every time went to my LGS. Yeah. I played against Arclight Phoenix last night. <laughs> All right. Well, that wraps up this week's breakdown. Up next, we go through four new decks that emerged thanks to War of the Spark and discuss whether to sleeve, believe, or just heave them right in the trash. Stay with us.
So every time a new set comes out, people love testing with the new cards that emerge. And a lot of new decks seem to be emerging just because of the cards that came out in the set, not to mention existing decks that are getting new toys to play with. That's right. And so, you know, we wanted to put together a kind of fun, loose format that would let us test a bunch of decks and talk about a bunch of decks on, on an episode. So, you know, I don't know if our listeners remember the edition of Sleeve It, Believe It, Heave It that we did for Ravnica Allegiance. That was episode nine of the Dive Down. That's so long ago already. It really was a while ago. I went back and looked at the notes and was shocked at the uh, the date on those. Um, so I just wanted to give a little refresher on what the idea here is um, behind the rating system. And so everybody is going to has played a deck. They're going to give a kind of little pitch or explanation about what is what the deck is trying to do, what's new about the deck with the new cards from the set, what their experience was like, and then they're going to give a rating. And then each of us, based on their assessment of the deck is are going to end our own research are going to give our own kind of rating in the deck you know what i love about this is that we can just predict we, we predicted that this is going to happen like we had this on our calendar just months like a month out and of course we we have you know five six seven decks we could have chosen from for all these new cards from war of the spark it did not disappoint there was no yeah. shortage of decks yeah yeah this ravnica block has been unreal for modern well you're right and so here's a recap of what the rating system means. Sleeve it means you're definitely going to try this deck out. You're getting ready to open up your box of dragon shields and shove some cards in and jam up against somebody. Believe it means you think it's a plausible deck that you're interested in, that you're going to keep an eye on, but you're not necessarily willing to commit to, to buy the cards that are in it or think it's a slam dunk for the, for the format going forward. And finally, heave it is we're going to toss it out the old window. I'm going to put it in some uh, vintage Ultra Pros with some crimped corners. So I don't know about you guys, but the deck I selected was because I was initially a believer, and I basically wanted to test the hypothesis that the deck I picked could or maybe doesn't work. I think that's that's a great way to think about it. The deck that I selected was because I tried to pick the most ridiculous thing I saw on the list of five O's. And uh, I think that everybody has stuff in between here and there. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I went in, you know, with a, with a strong belief in the deck already. So I just wanted to test it. You know, I, need, I needed some reps. Yeah. So we're going to start with Zach. Yay. For our first Sleeve It, Believe It, Heave It. Zach, go. So my pick is the deck 10-rack, which is an evolution of the deck 8-rack. So on, Lazy on, nomenclature, on. by the it's way. Already, it's already... There's added some racks. So the racks are Davriel. So Davriel is my pick-to-click for war, and he has shown up as, in his ancestral home of 8-rack. Just a so, can of corn. Out can in we the call outfield. it Davriac instead? You don't like 10-rack? <laughs> nah, I mean, I'm just trying to stretch for something else. I like these portmanteaus. I don't know if you you remember from earlier. <laughs> you, do you mean 15 minutes ago? Is that what yeah. you're referring to? <laughs> So this is an evolution, like I said, of the deck 8-Rack. So for anybody unfamiliar with that deck or needs a refresher, that deck is a mono-black discard-based deck. So what you're doing is you're using hand disruption to take cards out of your opponent's hand, using cards like Liliana the Veil and Smallpox to destroy creatures and mess with resources in a way that your maybe hand disruption cannot, and then use uh, the rack effects to, to play their life total. So what I mean by the rack effects is it's named after one original card called the rack. 
And what the rack is, it's a one-man artifact. When it enters the battlefield, you choose an opponent. So at the beginning of that player's upkeep, the rack deals X damage to that player, where X is three minus number cards in their hand. Cool. So what are the new cards in this in this deck, and what exactly do those do as well? So Davriel is the the big addition. He has a rack effect where if the opponent has one or less cards in their hand, he deals two to them. And then the other big one was Liliana's Triumph as a two of. So that is an edict mm. effect that also has a discard tacked on if you control Liliana Planewalker. Yeah, so we, we, we picked that pretty early on too, so that's seeing play. Right, exactly. So the the changes this deck has made from the typical... And this deck I'm specifically referring to a list that 5 would recently. I'm sure there are people doing all sorts of builds with this. This is referring explicitly to the one that came out recently in the 5 dump. So the changes this deck has made from 8-rack to become 10-rack is they have cut all copies of Collective Brutality. They have trimmed down on copies of Fatal Push and Thoughtseize. And they are down one land to 23, and they are running an extra copy of Field of Ruin. Mm-hmm. So I have wanted to play an 8-rack style deck for a very, very long time. Probably for as long as I've been playing Scred, this archetype's interested me. I chose to buy into Scred and not 8-rack, and that's where we are where we are. But I've always found this very enticing. I just imagine a young Zach many years ago holding <laughs> holding a Raven's Crime and a... Uh, <laughs> In one hand and a scrat in the other hand and having to choose. That's universe 213B, actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm in a lot of eyeliner and I'm a big crow fan in that universe. Scrying sheets. Collective brutality. I don't know what to pick. Like I said, I'm, I was very excited to play this deck, but ultimately I was pretty let down with this build. And here are some of the issues mm. I ran into when I was playing this deck. So I found that the deck had pretty consistent mana issues, which was bizarre because it's a monocolored deck right this is an insane bullet point to see on your list i know wild so there are six lands main deck that cannot produce black while there are nine cards because it's mutavolt and field of ruin and there is the card urborg tomb of yogmoth to make those guys produce black mana but you don't always see that and sometimes you're stuck with two field of ruins and a lily in your hand so there are nine cards main deck that require double black in their mana cost we've run the numbers here comes shane beers with the numbers Honestly, Zach, it's interesting to see that even in a monocolored deck, you can have mana problems. And I think that this is just an indication where, you know, sometimes a greedy mana base can 5-0 a league. And like you said, like there's nine cards that require double black. You want to hit triple, you want to hit double black and uh, a colorless even for Liliana. And I remember like some Carson articles are saying like you want to run, I think it's uh, 18 black mana sources to reliably hit even two on turn three. Right. So, you know, you just really, you can't uh, skimp on your black mana sources, even in a monocolor deck, if you need to hit double black frequently. Right, and you really do need that one black mana on turn one for your hand disruption. So it's not like you can keep a sketchy hand and hope to get there. You really do need at, probably at least two sources of black right away. And it's I put back some hands that were questionable because I didn't think I'd get my third black. And it's just, there are a lot of bad feelings. So tacking on to this point is the deck has, at this build, a very not-so-good mana curve. The This build has 10 cards that are CMC3 in the main and it's frustrating to draw a Lily of the Veil or a Bantu's Last Reckoning that would really help you turn a corner and just not be able to cast it. And what's really also not problematic but difficult for this deck is it runs four smallpox. And part of that card is you have to sacrifice a land. So you're already light on land and you require two black to cast it. 
So a lot of times I found myself having to lose one of my swamps, and you discard a card too. So I, I just found that with the way the deck is currently built, there were a lot of times where playing smallpox was the right play, but then it took me off Lily for a little bit. Awkward. I know. But don't worry, I'm, I'm going to get to some positives, but I want to get this out of the way. Okay. And I think what was the biggest issue for me personally was the lack of removal. So no clicked brutality just felt so bad for me. I played against burn twice in my 10 games, so that factors in definitely. But it just felt like a couple of times I'm like, oh yeah, I can draw that from the top, and no, no you can't. There's not a way out this time. There are three fatal pushes in the deck, but I just felt like maybe four was what I would wanted. And I wasn't a huge fan of Liliana's Triumph. There's only four Lilies in the deck, and it doesn't really feel like it's that worth it. I, I never felt like uh, Edict Effect was what I wanted. I wanted spot removal. Yeah, I've been kind of hearing a little bit of room, you know, talk about Town of Modern Land, saying that you know Liliana's Triumph is probably not going to be too impactful just because of the reasons you said. Like, it might be a little cute. Like, you know, we don't need Edicts in Modern. Like, we're not killing... Um, true name nemesis or something like that. Exactly, and boggles isn't really a. If you have a lot of boggles in your meta, I would consider this. That's a definitely a possibility. But in my ten games I played, I didn't get the synergy a single time. That's surprising. I know. And the final thing is, as we mentioned, a braid is very popular, and there's a lot of artifact hate. So your card, the rack, is like it's it's able to be blown up in game one because people have the hate for it. So it's a card that should just be pretty consistent and hard to remove early, and I found myself getting blown up constantly. So I know that that was a negative take, but my experience wasn't entirely negative. I have a few pretty good takeaways as well. So I was really impressed by Davriel. I really, really, really liked him. Him being a 2 and 1 black was very, very good. Like I said, there are times when you have a Mutavolt, a Field of Ruin, and a Swamp, and you can play Davriel there. You can't play Lily. And there are a bunch of times where I was able to play him, minus put them to zero, and then let's go, let's go, you're in top deck mode. So I think that this is, of course, the correct shell for him. I loved him. I think this deck needs to tweak its converted mana cost a little bit more. I'm not sold on the Ensnaring Bridges main or the Bantus. I think some other stuff could be moved around, but he felt very good. And it feels like he's definitely a step in the right direction for this deck. And to, you know, c compound on that, I think that this deck felt like it had a lot of raw power, but the shell it was forced into was not exactly right for it. And, you know, I only played two leagues, like I said. It wasn't a ton of experience, but it just felt like the deck wasn't exactly there, but not because there aren't the cards for it, but because the cards weren't put together in the right order. I'm looking at this list, Zach, and I can see definitely a wide open space where I might want some collective brutalities in the sideboard. You know, both is going to shore up against maybe some control strategies and also burn strategies where you can, you know, do a, a dress like effect, but also, uh, you know, kill one of their uh, small creatures or something like that. I think that. You know, you're right. I think it looks like it has some potential, but it doesn't look like it has the... It's not tuned just yet. Exactly. So my final thoughts on the matter is I'm really... I, I believed it when I went in. I believed it so hard. Like I said, I had, I've been wanting to play this deck for probably five years at this point. I was let down, so it's, it's not a heave. I'm going to leave it on the kitchen counter and come back later. So I'm... It's a soft belief. Yeah, so let, let, let someone else tune it. Type exactly, thing. exactly. I think the power level's there. I think it might be a little bit, and it might need a card from Modern Horizons. I'm sure it'll be some low-costed black card people can try. But the deck feels almost, almost there, and Davriel definitely gave it a push in the right direction. Zach, I wonder if this can be tweaked to be improved with the cards we have now. Because looking at this list, I'm not sure how essential to Field of Ruin are. 
And likewise, I'm not sure how essential two main deck and snaring bridge are, especially in a meta where people might not be running that many humans and might be banking on slower decks that are light on threats. Yeah, absolutely. I Every time I had the snaring bridge game one, it never felt good. It definitely feels more like a sideboard card. It's always meta dependent, of course, and if your meta is nothing but merfolk and humans, maybe consider bringing it in. But I did not love it. So... I, I really I didn't have time unfortunately to throw together my own build or anything like that, and maybe that's something we can look forward to in the coming weeks. But I do think there is a, a nugget to be mined out here. What does the rest of the team think? I believe it too. I lost to this deck at a LGS league last week running Davriel and pretty much doing what I mentioned where they had a ensnaring bridge in the side. They did get some value out of Liliana's Triumph, but that also may have to do with me playing Grixis in this league and mm. Death Shadow being such a threat light deck. Liliana's Triumph is a pretty good removal spell. Yeah, it seems like a great card against that deck because it gets both fish and mm-hmm. uh, shadows. I will mention, though, that I played, I think, in total four to six games against this person. Part of it was we were testing for the MCQ, and over time I did figure out how to beat it. And I wonder if 8-Rack is one of those decks that's really beatable when you understand your role in the matchup. I, I think that's part of what draws me to it, because Prison's similar, right? Where if you know I'm a Blood Moon deck and you can play around it, your percentage goes up quite a bit. I think it does have a pretty big gotcha factor, and it can stress people out as well. I think that if you can sort of take a deep breath and zoom in and like not get tilted by your hand being torn apart, it's a little easier to tackle. Good reminder not to tilt. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a believer. I mean, I'm not going to go out and buy these cards, but I think that the deck certainly has, you know, a power level that makes me say, yeah, you can take this in 4-0 at your local game store. Heave it. Oh. Bye. Wow. Why? You I think don't it's know. Good? <clears throat> I just, I feel like this is one of those decks that might not get there. Are you going to recycle it at least or just right in the trash? Composting? I mean, there's a lot of options of what happens to garbage in the supply chain down the road it depends on if china is interested in buying recycling at this point in time what the commodities market is like whether we're going to landfill it and come back for it later you know you know dave those landfills are hermetically sealed nothing breaks down in there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's what i've heard <laughs> yeah we'll see i think that needs some tuning i think it's not going to be a, a tier one staple but i think it can be something you can have some fun with and take it to your lgs and and win from now now and then for sure all right so are you a believer as well yeah i said that yeah Ten rack, three believes in a heave. Stan, I'm super hyped to hear yours, man. Yeah, my deck has many names. On Goldfish, it's just called UB. I've pe- I've heard people call it Narset Pitch because it runs yeah, the seen, pitch cards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Narset Pitch. I've been calling it Blue Black Narset Prison because I really feel like that's what it's trying to do is lock the opponent out from playing Magic. So the basic goal of this deck is to get either a new Narset Planeswalker on the board or a Notion Thief, because you're very unlikely to win without either of these. And then once you have either of these two pieces on the board, you strip your opponent's hand with Day's Undoing, a three-mana sorcery from Magic Origins, wherein both players discard their hands and shuffle their hands and graveyard into the library, then draw seven cards. So the interaction is that... With Narset or Notion Thief on the board, the opponent can't draw more than one card. Yeah, so the whole idea, there's there's a number of cards, right, that like kind of breaks the symmetry of these card draw spells. Is that correct? Or is it only Days Undoing? Oh, Days Undoing does, Lore Broker does, um, Geyer, 
Guy Reach Sanitarium does. They're all things that let you basically either draw a bunch of cards and discard or loot in the case of um, Lore Broker and Guy Reach Sanitarium. Got it. Okay. Yeah, and the beauty of this deck is it gets to perform a lot of its actions on the opponent's draw step, which is, I think, one of the most fun features of it and why I took a shine to it. Yeah. I mean, Vendillion Click, even in this case, if you do it on their draw step, you get to look, take their best card, they don't get a replacement. Oh, <laughs> I, I just realized that one. That's good. Holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Stan, um, so I want to talk about what Notions Thief does because I did not know this. It's an older card. Um, so what Notions Thief is is a two blue and a black, and it's a human rogue with flash. It's a 3-1. If an opponent would draw a card except the first one that they draw in each of their draw steps, instead that player skips that draw step and you draw a card. So basically, like Stan said, it just keeps keeps the opponent from drawing more than one card. It's kind of, it's kind of expensive. Imagine what this card was for, though. So this was in Dragon's Maze originally. Ooh, this card, Hot set. This card was Sphinx's Rev Tech, anti-Sphinx's Rev Tech, supposedly in, in oh. standard back in that block. Now, it's nowhere near good enough for that. But So one of the cool things about Notion Thief that almost makes it better than Narset is if you cast a Days Undoing with Notion Thief on the board, you draw like 14 13 cards. cards. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have to just discard whatever you want, but that's never really a problem. If you're in that position, I think you're basically set up to win. Yeah. It's funny when you look at this, it looks a little bit like one of those rules that we've talked about with spoilers before for this deck anyway, which is like Narset and Notion Thief kind of have a redundant effect in, in some way, which is pretty interesting where it's kind of like, hey, we, we had Notion Thief before, but that wasn't enough to make a shell like this work. You mentioned the enormous hand size, and I see here that a card that is becoming a fan favorite or, a, a, I guess, a staff favorite here at the dive down is Commandeer. So you can draw 14 cards and then lose three of them to take one of their things. Seems pretty good. Worth noting that Vendillion Click and Notion Thief are, in fact, your win conditions. The prison lock in and of itself will not win you the game. It just prevents your opponent from playing magic, essentially by making sure they have no or at least no more than one card in hand but you really need the v-click or the notion thief beats to close it out the deck also does buy time until you get to the narset lock with various tempo spells and counter spells we mentioned commandeer and disrupting shoal as two of those tools disrupting shoal being a counter spell that's flexible but sometimes it's not good enough depending on what your opponent is casting so I'm going to start with the good of this deck because it is very, very fun and I loved playing it. And I got to say, it felt remarkably strong against combo and control strategies because if your opponent is just trying to set up a combo kill or trying to build up a ton of mana toward some kind of planeswalker payoff, by then you either have a lot of time to set up your lock or you're picking up all the counter spells and tempo spells you need to prevent them from basically landing anything on the board yeah one thing that i thought was super interesting i i watched uh conley woods play this on stream about a week and a half ago and he had one game where he went um against tron where his opponent went natural tron into karn turn three and he cast commandeer <laughs> on it and took the took the karn and then huh. the opponent snap conceded it was pretty pretty amazing yeah i would one of the reasons why I think the lock is strong is because once you have either Narset or 
Notion Thief on the board, Lore Broker or Gaia Reach Sanitarium like truly feel broken and they just prevent your opponent from doing anything. Plus you get to activate them at the draw step, which makes this deck somewhat unique. There were some issues I had with the deck. And they're actually kind of similar to what I heard Zach mention. For one, I felt like the deck had a big problem with wide creature strategies. And if my opponent was able to resolve like more than two creatures, that was a pretty big problem. A couple of Vapor Snags and Snapbacks never really felt good enough at dealing with creature strategies. I lost to humans and decks like that. Basically, if you go wide enough, the Narset deck, I think in its current shell, just runs out of tools. Yeah, and Blue doesn't have a lot of tools for dealing with that either outside of that, so it's tough to find something to bring in. Do you think a deck like this could run Cyclonic Rift? It'd have a tough time getting to seven mana. Isn't, okay. the, isn't the Overload six in a blue? It is, on? yeah, it is seven yeah. mana. There's the two mana mode early, and it's really one of the few board wipes that Blue has consistently, but... Yeah. I think probably if you felt like you really needed a board wipe, that's the best one that you have access to. Better than Aether Spouts, at least. Yeah. Exactly. Dave makes a really good point that seven mana is a lot, and the deck currently is only running 18 lands. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, and not a lot of draw spells. So you do get to pitch it, but I don't know. Do you really need to find another two drop to pitch to your disrupting shoals? Wait, doesn't the deck have a ton of draw spells? Not really. So Narset replaces herself, but she only draws you non-land, non-creature spells. Currently, the, the list only has two remand. No cantrips. Mm. But Lore Broker, Lore Broker draws you cards. When it's, you know, even when it's an asymmetrical version of it, you still have to discard, so it just loots. It's just card quality then. Lore Broker draws you and your opponent cards. So I still don't even think that's ideal unless you have the lockdown because you don't want your opponent to have that level of card selection either. Right. That's what I mean is like if even when you have the lockdown, it's not card advantage. You just get you just get the loot, which is powerful, but not as good as something that says draw a card. And then um, also days undoing can be really great because you can refill, but you only have so many of those to, to work from. So I think that's where you get a kind of this huge card advantage, but you don't really get cantrips. And Days Undoing, again, is symmetrical. Your opponent gets the effect as well, so you're refilling their hand if you're casting this without one of the lock pieces. Yeah, which you really, really don't want to do. You have to have the lock piece. Right. I really wish I was able to double spell, and I felt like I practically never could. You know, if I could Narset into Days Undoing, which is only six mana, that would feel awesome. But with 18 lands and no cantrips and not a lot of ways to get through the deck to find your lands, that felt generally impossible. Likewise, the deck does run border posts, but that's not a ramp spell because you need to bounce a land back to your hand in order to put the border post down, or at least to do it for one mana, which is where it really shines. And there were some fun plays where I had no land drop and I was able to tap a land, play the border post, bounce a land that I tap back and then play it again. But even that, you're not really ramping. You're kind of just setting yourself for future turns. And the best use I got out of border posts were generally pitching them since they are blue-black. I have a, a small hypothetical for you. So you mentioned that there's not a ton of win cons with the deck. You really are trying to beat down with Click or Notion Thief. Would you recommend someone bring in, if they have it, Surgical Extraction against you then? To target either of those? Yes. So they would have to either get Click or Notion Thief into the yard, which is possible. I think sometimes right. you are using those almost as removal spells because Days Undoing gets them back into your library. 
Mm, okay, good point. But, you know, that's what you'd really have to do is surgical both of them. Sure. What about Narset then? I mean, she seems pretty integral until what this deck's trying to do and a big part of it. Do you think that surgicaling her would be a good move? Sure. I mean, Notion Thief is there if Narset's gone, but Narset doesn't kill herself when she minuses. She comes in with five loyalty counter and her ability is minus two. So okay. a lot of times she just sticks around as an enchantment with a static ability. So again, if you can destroy Narset and surgical, that could almost lock the Narset player from winning the game. But at the same time, they still have Notion Thief to potentially do a plan B. Hey Stan, quick question for you. Did you find that sometimes you felt that you weren't able to use Narset for anything but her static? Like if they had a board if your opponent had like a board that they were going to attack into your Narset, you wanted to keep her static ability active, you just sort of had to play her and not really use her minus? I have done that. And to be honest, I only tried doing that after I heard Brian Gottlieb suggest doing that. And that's fine. But her being able to replace herself and, you know, in some ways maybe buy you a few points of life, I think could also be valuable. Otherwise, she's a three mana do nothing. No, that makes sense. I also felt like a lot of cards in the deck almost did nothing and were practically uncastable. So Days Undoing feels really bad if you don't have a lock piece in play. Shoal misses more spells than it counters, in a lot of my experiences. Kalmandir, also really bad against creature decks. And Notion Thief, with 18 lands, was quite hard to cast. All this being said, my verdict, as much as I wanted to sleeve it, I'm still just a believer. And I really think it needs some tweaking. But the lock felt strong enough and consistent enough that against slow decks, it's really strong and you can pull it off. But against faster decks, it's going to need a different strategy to stay in the game. Yeah, I'm looking at this list, Dan, um, and it looks like everything's a little bit more expensive than I think I'd want to be playing in modern. And it's not just the fact that they're like, you know, just expensive blue spells. I think there's just not enough early interaction here. Like, there's a few spell pierce, there's a few spell snare, there's like a singleton vapor snag. Only two remand. And to me, that was crazy. Like... I love Remand in these kinds of decks especially because it buys you a turn if you can cast it on turn two or three, and it gets you deeper into your deck. I mean, there's a couple of unsubstantiates. I just feel like I think that the balance between all these pieces is still uncertain, right? And I think that that's just a, a, a consequence of being such an early build of the deck. Yeah. It really feels like the Black Splash is just for Notion Thief, which is really weird that there's no Black Removal or even, you know, like a Fatal Push or Collective Brutality or something. It feels like that's really what the deck is missing. Yeah, it makes me wonder whether the deck can run Counter Squall. Mm, interesting. I also wonder if maybe a future version of this deck could turn into Grixis or just Blue-Red so that the deck can start running either Sweltering Suns as a removal board wipe that you can cantrip electrolyze as a blue spell that you can pitch or play for removal and draw a card or even is a charm for kind of the same reasons well, at that point wouldn't you need a redundant notion thief effect because that's, that's the whole reason you're splashing black is to get that ability of cutting them off from card draw yeah but splashing black for a four drop seems kind of easy you know if you just run enough fetches yeah you also get unmoored ego in the side so hey. yeah that's important unmoored ego is very strong i think in blue black decks right now so yeah, in the future, I think the deck needs some more draw spells, maybe going up to four remand and other technology. I can see border posts eventually getting cut from this deck, 
the deck does run Blast Zone. And I want to mention that Blast Zone is a great card, and I really think it's powerful, but I'm not convinced that this is a good home for it because activating it and then blowing it up is really expensive and really hard to do on the same turn. And because you have only 18 lands and you can only do one action per turn, I think Blast Zone ends up being a little too slow. Likewise, this is going to sound like a curveball, but people are talking about Force of Will possibly being in Modern Horizons. And if that happens, I think this is going to be a really interesting home for that card. Force of Will could end up warping the entire format and being in all the decks, but this is one of those strategies that needs something a little extra. And Disrupting Shoal just isn't that powerful since so many times you don't have the right card to pitch to it to make it effective. Whereas Force of Will is just a catch-all hard counter. What do you guys think? Would any of you believe it? I don't believe it yet, no. I think that you're right. I think there's something here. I think it's missing another another just something. Maybe it needs a board wipe that draws a card or something to that effect. It, it seems I like where it's at, and I'm a big fan of prison decks, but it feels like it's just missing something. And maybe it just needs to be tweaked more, and maybe the card's already out there. But I feel like in this current state, it's like version 0.5 not even version 1.0 yet yeah exactly this deck looks like a mess to me honestly i just i I don't know what it's tuned for i don't know like i think it just looks like it looks like a test build like you said zach it just looks like a very early build i think that it has potential sure i'm on believe it (gasps) you're you're a believer (laughs) i mean it's got blue cards in it so yes i was gonna say is that all it takes a single remand and you're in that's a big plus for me. I mean, I, I did watch that the uh, most of the league that Conley did with this deck, and so I, I feel like it has some really powerful moments to it. I think he went 4-1 or 5-0 with it on the stream that, that he did with it, which was um, pretty interesting to watch. I think you captured most of the gameplay that, that I think you know he talked about during that stream too i just think it's got some powerful stuff going on zach did did you give a did you give a believe or a I did. heave or what, what did you say I, I said heave it but i will believe it one day yeah i'm kind of there too i'm i'm on a i'm on a i'm on a heave point 5 like somewhere in between okay so narset prison two believes two heaves on the bubble the blue boys versus the not blue boys I hope Narsa Prison catches on, and then we'll know how impactful we are as a podcast. So, Dave, what do you have for us? All right, so I mentioned at the top of this segment that I kind of just went through and picked out the craziest deck I could find that was built around some War of the Spark cards. And I think there's one card in particular that uh, might stand out to people on this list. So I would like to ask you if you are interested in a 6-6 Flying Dragon for five, Zach's, Zach's, Zach's ears are breaking up. For I'm five, what you would call extremely interested. Is this a high interest payment or? It is. It is a red card, but it's also <laughs> a white, blue, black, and green card too. We'll bring all the good colors. <laughs> it is. It's all the good colors. It is Niv Mizzet Reborn. So this deck uh, on Goldfish is called Rainbow Niv Mizzet, which is kind of like okay. <laughs> I love look. I'm Thanks. looking at this list on. I'm looking at this list on Goldfish, and there are so many color pips. Yes. So the the author of this deck is uh, Cave Dan, who's kind of a well known brewer. I'm not sure if they stream. They also apparently recently started a podcast about brewing in modern called Faithless Brewing, which I have not got to listen to the episode where this deck was brewed on it because I just found out about it since uh since I uh since I played with this deck. So they're part of the Faithless family. Yeah, they're 
subsidiary of Faithless Incorporated. But here's how this deck works. So basically, this deck is built around the idea of... I'm going to read Niv-Mizzet Reborn to people in case people forgot what it does. Yes, please. <laughs> so Niv-Mizzet Reborn is... In case they, ne- they probably never knew. <laughs> well, it's got really sweet art, and I think it's a pretty important part of the story. So I think people probably looked, and it's a mythic from the most recent set. So I imagine people are somewhat familiar with it. But here's the deal. It costs Wooburg. It's a 6-6 six, six flying dragon. And here's what the rest of the text says. It says, when Niv-Mizzet Reborn enters the battlefield, reveal the top 10 cards of your library. For each color pair, choose a card that is exactly those colors from among them. Put the chosen cards into your hand and the rest at the bottom of your library in a random order. So at most, you can actually pull 10 cards if you find a card of each guild. Correct. And that's the thing that this deck aims to do. Which is, how fast can I get out a Niv-Mizzet Reborn, cast it, <laughs> and then draw 10 cards out of my out of my library, or as many cards as I can? Now, this is the timmiest card I have ever seen. You are talking smack deck. about how you don't play EDH, and I'm looking at this deck list, and this is just someone's EDH deck that they threw together in Modern. <laughs> that they cut out 40 cards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but here's the thing. This has been on the 5-0 deck, competitive 5-0 list twice now. Oh, my gosh. I'm not uh, saying it's not good. Dumps. I'm saying it's an EDH deck. Well, I'm saying it's not good, but <laughs> <laughs> but I've played it, so you listen for a minute. Sure. Then you can say it's not good. Um, actually, I you know I don't know. Like It was a pretty confounding deck. I mean, so like I said, this deck is trying to figure out how fast it can cast Niv Mizzet Reborn, draw a bunch of cards, and then kind of just have massive card advantage. The thing that's really hard about this deck is that the card choices that you have to make in order to kind of have it play with the guild idea actually limits the choices of things you can have. So, you know, it, here's here's what's in this deck. Would you be interested in a deck that has Assassin's Trophy? Sure. Is it Charm? Yes. Lightning Helix? No. Yes. And Coligan's Command all in one deck. Yes. I would be interested mm. if you could also throw in a Bring to Light a supreme verdict and or even a thought erasure i won't get out of bed for anything less than an attention sphere does it have safe right quest though that's the question yes that's a card i had not seen before this which i think is really interesting but here's the thing is that some of these cards are really calculated for what they're supposed to be right so there are no simic cards other than bring to light in this deck and that's a big part of the whole the whole thing because if you draw a bring to light off of a Niv-Mizzet and someone kills your Niv-Mizzet, you can probably cast use bring to light to search up another Niv-Mizzet and do the whole thing again. So you're pretty much guaranteed to always just draw that as your as your Simic card. You know, you're going to draw a Lightning Helix almost every time. You're going to draw an Assassin's Trophy quite often when you get it to hit. And so you do get a lot of really powerful cards, and Bring to Light also gives you a little bit of a um, little bit of a utility package where you can kind of use Bring to Light to search up your Supreme Verdict, or use Bring to Light to search up Unmoored Ego in Game One if you want to make sure that you have that. Which I actually got to do against uh, someone who was playing um, Amulet Titan, where I just turn turn five, turn four. Actually, I ramped into Bring to Light, got Unmoored Ego, and took all their Primeval Titans right away while they were in the middle of trying to do some crazy stuff. So Dave, I'm looking at this deck list right now and looking at all the color pips like we're talking. It seems like this a deck like this would have mana problems. Is that something you experienced? I see that there is the four birds of paradise, but it just seems like 
trying to decide what to fetch for or what to keep seems really difficult. So trying to find what to so you're totally right that my in my experience it was really difficult to figure out what to fetch and what lands to keep and what lands I should get when I when I had access to things. Fortunately, there's a little bit of uh, kind of grease on the skids with this deck because it runs three mana confluence, which is if you remember that is basically the modern sort of templated city of brass from uh, Journey into Nyx, and then it also runs a car, a card called. Pillar of the Parunes, which I don't think yeah. people really remember, which is add, it's a land, and it just says tap to add one mana of any color to your mana pool. Spend this mana only to play a multicolored spell. So it's a five color land with no drawback other than the fact that you have to use it to cast a gold card. And guess what? Everything in here except for Inquisition, uh, Inquisition of Kozilek and Birds of Paradise is a, is a gold card, is a multicolored card. Yeah, so, it's fun and on theme, too. Uh, Niv-Mizzet was one of the pair runes that his uh, signal's on there, so it's a very flavor win. Exactly. Definitely, oh, that was one of the best parts of this deck, was that it was very <laughs> on on theme for flavor for me. Um, <laughs> so I, I don't want to dunk on this deck too much, because it was actually really fun to play. And once I got a little bit of practice um, with fetching lands, you know, I, I played uh, Tribal Flames Zoo a couple of times, right around the same time that um, kind of towards the end of the year last year. So I had a little bit of practice in figuring out like, what's the fastest way for me to get over to five lands, five colored lands and, and kind of go from there. Um, the, but I think that ultimately this deck, the main problem I had with this deck was it was just kind of like too slow. Like even, even as cool and powerful as, as chaining Niv-Mizzet into another Niv-Mizzet was, um, even as powerful as being having access to all these multicolored spells was a lot of times I felt like there were a lot of cards in here that were just kind of like awkwardly placed so that you would have something to draw if you hit off of Niv-Mizzet. Dave, do you think this is a deck that benefits from London Mulligan? I don't actually, I don't know if it would make that much of a difference. I think you would probably hit Niv-Mizzet more often, but the problem I had more so was it was hard to get it down earlier than turn four, which is fine, but there's much more powerful things that happen in modern than a six, six flyer that draws you five cards as crazy as that sounds, mostly because you have to take off the entire turn to be able to get those five cards. And then when you untap, you often have kind of unclear targets for the things that you're supposed to, for the cards that you did draw. How often were you able to cast a turn one birds of paradise? Um, I mean, basically whenever I drew one, I think the problem that I had was trying to figure out how much I should be kind of mulling to try to get uh, turn one Birds of Paradise. One card yeah. that actually impressed me a tiny amount in this deck was Domri Anarch of Bolas, which is interesting because it's just sort of a, a nice kind of ramp card in this. So basically this, this Domri is one red-green for a three loyalty planeswalker, creatures you control get plus one plus zero as a static ability. But the, the only thing that really counts here is plus one, add red or green, creature spells you cast this turn can't be countered. So that was a much more consistent way. I found that I drew into that much more often or had that available on turn four to use for one of the pips for Niv-Mizzet a little bit more often than the Birds of Paradise really mattered all that much. Now, the problem that I had with this deck was not the like clearly powerful spells but it was the cards like two inquisition of kozilek feels like a weird kind of fit to me 
the safe right quest was good as a piece of kind of mana fixing, but it often was just felt like kind of a wasted card. Counter Squall was an awkward draw often out of the main where there, there's a lot of decks where it's just not any good or I would draw it too late and it just would be something that just kind of sat in my hand. Uh, Thought Erasure, it seems like a card that I would love to be good in modern because it's it's a sweet effect. Plus it has a, a cool, um, you know, with the... Um, surveil mechanic that that's a great mechanic but it's just kind of expensive for the effect that it has in modern so there's just kind of a lot of cards here that i felt like weren't quite doing enough to pull their weights even with the power of tutoring from bring to light and things like that now there's a good chance that i just don't really know how to play a bring to light deck the right way but um to me it felt like the speed and kind of complication of the deck didn't really um make up for the power level so for me, I would probably put this in the heave it category, but I don't know what you guys think after listening to me talk about it for a couple minutes. I'm kind of man. I am kind of fascinated by this deck. I just keep I I just keep looking at this list. I just keep looking at it, and I'm like, I I, I see the thought process behind all these two color combinations, right? And it's like, well, what am I going to run in this color combination? What am I going to run in this co- color combination? And you can see how there's a lot of stuff to choose from. And so it seems kind of flexible in that way. It's like it's like just a weird guild toolbox deck. But you also have to cast a five mana creature spell. So Dave, are you mostly winning just by beating down with Niv and then maybe getting some extra damage off Lightning Helix or Colligan's Command? Yes. Yeah, you're basically trying to kill with Niv Mizzet. To me, that's the most problematic issue. Like, <laughs> Nivis canceled. Well, I just, I love Bring to Light strategies, and it seems so powerful and a great way to cheat powerful effects into play. But when you only have one win condition, that also makes the deck wildly vulnerable. Yeah. It's almost like Bring to Light should have pushed a little bit more into creature cards that are t- the guild combinations instead of so many spells to just give you a little bit more of a kind of some other resilient threats, things like that. Yeah. Cause what are you doing if your Niv Mizzet gets unmoored egoed? Dying. I'm sure <laughs> it didn't happen to me, but it definitely would have been a real problem. I even feel like just getting your Niv Mizzet just counterspelled. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's not a cast trigger. I mean, this isn't an Eldrazi. He has to resolve to do the 10 card trick. You're kind of telegraphing this this five mana Niv Mizzet spell. I mean, you, the Domri lets you cast it uncounterable, but it's not like you can run Cavern of Souls or something like that. Naming Avatar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the last Airbender. Maybe maybe Kaya or Zav Usurper is the Plan B win condition because that card is bananas. Yeah, but it's it's not good against every deck. And this deck isn't really set up to have it be... It's not really a control deck, you know what I mean? Like, right. this there's feels no like it's trying to be... Say. Right, there's nothing that's trying to export a whole... Or export, exile a whole bunch of cards. There's a couple of rest in peace in the sideboard, so if you're going to play against that kind of strategy, then, of course, you would keep Kaya in and have that be part of your strategy. But, um, yeah, to me, it just felt like the plan was kind of unclear with this deck. Now, again, I'm probably going to go back and listen to the podcast from the author of this deck to to see what thought process led to this getting there, especially since it's gotten a couple of five O's. But, um, to me, it felt like pretty confusing. Yeah. I played against this deck in one of my leagues and it was not against the individual that invented it. It was somebody else, 
But when they first played Niv-Mizzet, I went, oh, what's happening? They're drawing so many cards. But then I, no joke, played a Blood Moon, and I ran away with the game because their yeah. mana base is very, very weak to Blood Moon. Yeah, that's a so, great point, too. Yeah, and I, you know, that's my deck. That's, you know, how things worked out, and not everyone runs main deck Blood Moon. But I just found, like, it wasn't, it was a little too slow and a little too soft to hate. Maybe the pilot just wasn't as good as individuals getting all these five O's, but I currently do not believe it. Yeah, I mean, this is going to sound crazy, but I kind of believe it, and only because I want to. I mean, <laughs> that is key, man. I'm with you. I mean, I just want to. I want to believe it. I'm not. I mean, I, I, nowhere near asleep. It. I'm not buying a bunch of the. I do have a number of these cards, surprisingly, but I'm not going to go out and buy more of them. But. I think it's just fun. I think that this is going to be one of those decks that, you know, it's going to be, if it's not already like an against the odds deck from Saffron Olive and MTG Goldfish, it's it's just something that I think people can, like Zach said, it's it's like it's like a constructed EDH deck. It sure is. It's quite affordable by modern standards. You can buy the whole deck from Card Kingdom for 400 bucks. What a world we live in. That's affordable. <laughs> yeah. By modern standards. So we got three Heavits and a Believe It? Or did you not give a rating yet, Stan? I think I'm a believer just because I think Bring to Light is strong. But I am also highly skeptical because a single win condition is not where I want to be in Modern. And there is Creeping Tar Pit. Don't at me. But it's just the one Creeping Tar Pit. Maybe Creeping Tar Pit plus all the removal slash control spells that you're running in your 25-card spell suite is good enough yeah i was also concerned by the lack of creature lands i'm maybe there's some sort of thesis or treatsy i haven't read about why they've only decided to use one but i feel like it like this could benefit from more who knows i'm not a brewer do you mean treatise no i don't okay i just wanted to check so to use a shane term i'm like a 0.5 on the belief scale a beta believer I got to be honest, I'm shocked that Zach and I are the two doubters here and you guys are like, yeah, let's run this this uh, crazy, crazy game. Well, this, this just goes back to our conversation, Dave, where it's just, you know, decks I like just mean I can have some fun playing them. So I don't I don't think it's that good. I honestly think it's probably a heave in terms of competitiveness, but it's certainly a believe in my heart. I wonder if the 5-0 that Cave Dan got had something to do with the fact that opponents just had no idea what the player was up to and how to deal with it. <laughs> what are they doing? Why are they drawing 10 cards? What's happening right now? Why did niv die in the first place? Do you want to go into some lore? Or... No. <laughs> no. No. Me either. All right. Shane, what's your deck? Oh, man. You you already, you already know what this is. This is, this is Wishtron, my friend. <clears throat> Because, you know, Karn, the great creator, is already seeing all this early success in Green Tron. Can we talk about how many decks this card is in? So many. It's in every deck. So many decks. You should so, you should just be playing <laughs> Karn right now the way people used to play Git Probe. Yeah. I don't know if it's that ubiquitous. <laughs> it will I be. I think there's something to that. But let's let's talk about that for a minute. So by my count so far, and you guys can add to this list. So there's, there's Green Tron. There's Blue Tron that I think was also running Karn, yeah? yeah. Sure is. There's yeah, yeah. Colorless Eldrazi that's also running Tron, or running sure. Karn. There's Amulet Titan that mm-hmm. was running yeah. it. There is Red, Red Prison, Prison that's War running Prison. it. War Prison slash Lantern. Mm-hmm. There's also um, the Mox Amber deck 
that we've seen floating around a little bit that's sort of like planeswalkers and white white legends i saw it in blue moon that's right I've also seen builds using Arbor Elf and Utopia Sprawl in combination with Pons of Land Destruction. So you're blowing up their lands, playing a Karn, and then locking them out with Landis when they have like two lands in play. Yes. I know that because it happened to me. I had two lands in play and they locked me out. Okay. I saw Tooth and Nail play it, similar to Ponza. Less of a Land Destruction package, but still a big mana deck. So okay. is it 10? 10 the number of decks That's right now? That's 10 that I counted just now. 10 different decks that have tried running just a straight-up playset of Karn the Great Creator, or three of them, mostly to kind of cheese into the to the um, wishboard, but also mostly to try to lock people out with Mycosynth Lattice if there's nothing they can do about it. Yeah, that's wild. So, guys, what um, usually happens when 10 or more different strategies that share basically nothing in common except the fact that they're playing this catch-all card because of how valuable it is, what happens to cards like that? I think you're jumping People the gun. People figure out ways. People figure out ways to to beat them. They go no. up in price, is what they do. Yes, MTG Finance, true. buy your copies now. So anyway, yeah. Shane, why don't you tell us a little bit about your experience playing this deck, and then Stan, I think we should get back to your question. Oh, oh, sure. I'll remember my question. No, no, I'm, I'm, <clears> I mean, <throat> I'm on, I'm on board with that conversation for sure. Um. You know, so I, I have a lot of experience playing classic Green Tron. I'm gonna, it's already the classic version. Um, so I wanted to take this new build for a spin through some leagues. I actually, like I said last week, I I tested it with kind of like a super light uh, Karn splash, almost just with like two Karn the Great Creators and a couple sideboard cards. But this is was more was more all in. Um, so briefly to summarize, so Karn the Great Creator, he costs four colorless mana, or it costs four colorless mana. It comes down with five loyalty, and his negative two allows you to wish for artifact cards in your sideboard. So you can use this to get uh, necessary or needed artifact cards from your sideboard in any game you're playing. It's not just your sideboard. It's also cards in exile, which is a really, mm. yeah, exactly. Because it's cards you own from outside the game, and that includes okay. exile. I like it. I saw someone, uh, Relic of Progenitus, you can exile your graveyard, and then Karn can go ahead and grab cards from the exile pile as well. Oh my gosh. I know, I, probably, I know. I probably I probably could have used this. Like, I, I didn't even think about that little interaction. Um, and so, people are using the new Karn to get anti-graveyard cards, anti-ability uh, like cards, like a Sorcerer's Spyglass or a Pithing Needle. Uh, a Crucible of Worlds to handle land destruction, a Witchbane Orb to be granted Hexproof, and also to remove curses. Don't forget that that fun interaction. Um, you can get a Walking Ballista to like ping down an opponent's board or get around an Ensnaring Bridge that's out, uh, things like that. Um, and the most busted-feeling one that Dave mentioned earlier is Mycosynth Lattice, which is a 6-CMC artifact, and when that's on the battlefield, it turns... Um, everything on the battlefield into an artifact as well as its other types and which in combination with Karn's static ability makes them unable to be tapped for mana on your opponent's side. So what, what Karn's static ability does is it uh, activated abilities of artifacts your opponent's control can't be activated. So note it does not say unless they are mana abilities or something like that. So just strict, you know, it straight up turns everything off on your opponent's side. So on an empty board or one where you've been controlling the board and have sufficient like blockers up for your your Karn, it, this can essentially just be good game and your opponent can't do anything. Um, another new card that people have been running in uh, Green Tron now is a Blast Zone. 
as their utility land in place of a fifth forest. We talked about that in our spoiler episode as well. Um, this is another really good addition to Tron, I think. It can be fetched up with like one of your land tutor abilities. It can be pumped up to handle things like land hate on the other side of the battlefield or you know, clear a bunch of creatures or do both at the same time. And so in, in my build, I which there's a link in the show notes, I put in four Karn, the Great Creator, went down to two O-Stone, two Relic of Progenitus, two Walking Ballista, and removed the World Breaker to make room for those four cards. And the Wishboard I selected, which was based off of looking at a few of the recent like 5-0 lists and the SCG Classic list and things like that, was a Grafdigger's Cage, a Sorcerer's Spyglass, a Crucible of Worlds, an Ensnaring Bridge, a third O-Stone, a Trinisphere, a Witchbane Orb, a Microsynth Lattice, and that left in room for three Nature's Claims, two Thought Knots here, and two Thrag Tusk, which are kind of part of the classic Tron sideboard. So yeah, that's uh, you, you definitely do shave down the sideboard a lot, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but that's kind of where you are with uh, like a Wish Tron right now. So the headline here is, Tier 1 deck gets better. That's, is that that's, what you're that, saying? That, that, that was more like that was more like my conclusion, but it can also be the headline as well. I think I think I think that's kind of a good summary. And so why why what was it like actually adding this dimension to the deck as you kind of play? It doesn't really change how the deck plays. It plays really similarly to the regular old Tron. Like your early game is make Tron, make Tron, make Tron, and then you use your mana to do busted things. But now you just have kind of this new angle to do some busted things with. Like tutor up these needed hate cards. It can tutor up these prison cards. It can tutor up creatures that you need. Like I've seen worm coils in the side, um, or rats like your O stone or something like that, right? Um, and so, one of the things that I think is it's not super straightforward. Like you don't just like nail a card in the great creator on on turn three after making Tron and like get the piece you need to win, right? Because you have to think about a few things like. Can you create some kind of lock immediately by, like, minusing Karn, grabbing some kind of artifact, and then casting it that turn? So, like, if you have seven mana, you can potentially cast something like a, a Graft Digger's Cage or a an Ensnaring Bridge with the three mana you have left over. And that can do a lot, certainly, but sometimes your hand isn't low enough with an Ensnaring Bridge to really stop your opponent's battlefield. Um, from attacking in and then just killing your Karn or something like that. But, you know, it, it can do something typically, right? So you have to think about that. You know, ideally, it's, when you have access to 10 or more mana, you can, and, and have controlled the board, which which Tron does very well, you can just lattice the opponent, right? And that, in my experience, has caused an immediate scoop. Like, I played seven matches um, in my testing and four games in those seven matches I was able to do the lattice lock and the opponent just immediately had to scoop because they had no options. Can we take a moment since you've mentioned lattice to consider what a player can do against lattice? They can float mana. Do you just have to float mana? Hope you have either an abraid or counter it. Yeah, I think it's a big reason why Monoroid Control is running four abraid right now. Yeah, and uh, uh, people are already talking about Hercules Recall being really valuable <laughs> right now. <laughs> That's funny. The other aspect of this that I think you shouldn't forget about is that you can, if you have creatures out, you have to do it into a place where there's nobody that can pressure into Karn. Because if yes, you kill Karn, exactly. the lock goes away exactly. as well. So that's and, that's another thing that can work. Yeah, and creatures can still attack through the latest. It's not an activated ability to swing. Yeah, you, you can't just you can't just slam a lattice and then the opponent's gonna scoop because like like I said, you have to really have controlled the board somehow or have like some blockers out so that they really can't get through into your Karn. So 
when you lack experience like I do, it's not really easy to wish for a card always from your from your sideboard or from exile. So like what you think is correct might not always actually be. Like there's definitely instances where I think I should have grabbed something like a Crucible of Worlds, but kind of greedily got something else that wasn't really actually as valuable at the time. Yeah, uh, a similar thing happened to me when I was, not for this episode perhaps, but I've been playing games with Karn with the Mono Red Prison. It's very similar where I play him and want to just grab Lattice because I know that's a lock, but he has to live for that lock to work. So yes. it's it's really more important if you're going to play him and he's not going to stick around, grab a more impactful artifact. Grab a Spyglass, grab a Crypt, grab something that's going to be better if you think that you need to play him and he's not going to live as well. And, of course, it's different when a deck with a lot of big mana, when you can maybe play him, minus him, and play the card. But I find it's very easy to get very greedy with this card, and you will be pretty punished yes. for that. And and not only greed, Zach, I think it's also kind of just, like, you really have to have some experience to know how to use the cards in the best way. And I think Sorceress Spyglass is kind of the number one for me, because it's, like, a very powerful but also pretty narrow card. And that you have to like, you know, you have to name just one card, right? Right. And so and that's something that I was identifying in the sideboard as is this is this worthwhile? And I think it definitely is, but it really requires some skill and experience to know how to use well and what's going to be the most advantageous play there. Absolutely. And I ran into situations where I would want to bring it into my main, but when you do that, you can't grab it anymore. So I wanted yes. to see it because I was playing against decks like Control where I wanted to be able yes. to you know name a Jace or a Teferi. But then I would draw Karn and go, oh, minus Karn. Oh, I brought them both in. Uh. And I don't know if I made the wrong play. Obviously, it was wrong to minus Karn because I didn't have the card there. But I don't know if I was wrong to bring the Spyglass into the main. Yeah, I did the same thing a couple times as well. You know, like, so... Uh, Karn the Great Creator really feels like a good chance for some card advantage because you can wish a couple times unless the opponent can get it off the battlefield. And then it has the added benefit of being that one-sided Stony Silence, which can be annoying to your opponent in, in the meantime, like if they have some artifacts out that they want to be using. Um, but I think the the hardest thing is really deciding on that sideboard and that wishboard package, right? Like, some cards I want to run by you guys is like, you know, uh, Trinisphere, right? So Trinisphere is a three-mana artifact, and it makes any spell that costs less than three cost at least three CMC, right? And so I was every time I wished, I was like, well, what? I don't need Trinisphere. Like, when would I need Trinisphere? And it just feels like... Like maybe versus like a Phoenix deck or like a storm or storm deck, it feels like a backbreaker. But like if, if Phoenix is in the downswing and Storm is this tertiary player anyway, um, you know what what do you really need Trinisphere for? So I brought in Trinisphere against Phoenix and it was very good for me. Having their cantrips be their entire turn was very good, and having them not be able to you know have removal and draw was powerful. It kept them off getting a Phoenix back as well. Of course, that's very specific to that one deck. I think Trinisphere is not as good versus many other decks, but I think the decks that it is good against, you do want that extra silver bullet for. Yeah, I think it's worthwhile. It just it's one of those things where I haven't seen enough use for it, so I just seeming like a dead weight in there. Um, what was surprising to me is Ensnaring Bridge proved somewhat difficult to use because you have to have your hand size low, and to keep those opposing creatures from bashing in. And but you also have to have like these alternate win cons in place since your creatures can't attack either, 
And so, like, this is where I'm going to get to this later, but I really wanted, like, a walking ballista in my sideboard because then I could have just played it and then pumped it and then pinged my opponent and then repeated it just to get around the the, the no attacking clause. And that was definitely an oversight on my part. Um, you know, like I said, the, the lattice combo seems busted. Uh, it really gets the opponent to scoop when you get when you can get that lattice through like counter magic or if they're not a, a counter magic deck you just slam it and they often have to scoop. Blast zone felt awesome. It felt very natural for the deck. You can cause you can get it with those land tutors and you really can easily get it to like a two or even a three to get things like damping sphere and stony silence and it incidentally gets like some smaller creatures or something like that. Um. Some issues I ran into is the Tron mirror is everywhere. Tron mirror is everywhere. It still just feels like a Tron race when you're playing that deck, which is you know ideally just to start stone raining with Karn. Um, I played three Tron mirrors in seven matches, and I know p- people I've been talking to said they've been playing tons of Tron. We well, the nice thing about the Tron mirror is once you get Lattice online, all you have to do is count decks to see who'll deck first, and that's how you determine the winner. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I really didn't identify a great sideboard card here for the mirror. And, I mean, Sorcerer's Spyglass seems like it can do something, but uh, any ideas you guys have? This is a, a little bit of a wild take, and it's not an artifact. It's not even a wishboard card. But what about Moonvolley Acid Moss? Isn't that a double green? Yes, it is. It is. Well, I'm not, I'm not casting that. Oh, well, never mind <laughs> I mean, it just seems like I didn't know what to do in the mirror. And because the mirror is so prevalent, I might need to kind of reach out to people who have been testing this more than I have. Um, it's still really challenging to face down blue-white control, and it's which I think is growing in power. You really have to play really carefully, really thoughtfully, and honestly just cross your fingers that they can't counter the spells that you're casting against them. I mean, I think right now that blue-white control is positively favored against tron which is kind of crazy to say huge reversal in the last two you know four or five months it's frustrating it's 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 scary you know it just feels like they always have it when i play them but i'm sure they always feel like i have it against them um you know if you slip in a crucible of worlds it can really help against the the land destruction but they seem to have the card advantage on the counter spell package that really does a lot for them they play crucible too sometimes I've also been seeing a lot of blue-white control decks running main deck surgical, so we are in that era. Still. Yeah, especially with Field of Ruin, it's a pretty gnarly combo. And you know, you really do nerf your sideboard, and so I'm not sure how weakened that sideboard is, like in the long term. And I think that really needs to be felt out over time. So, um, over, with my deck, I'd probably definitely add a walking ballista to it. I've wanted to fetch one of those up more than a few times already. I think it was an oversight to not have one in my sideboard. And I think I need to have some conversations with people who are testing and just kind of like talk about the strengths and weaknesses of all these wishboard cards. I think if you play this deck, you can't, this is one of those things we talked about this a while ago about sideboarding is you cannot just blindly copy this sideboard and without knowing what every card is going to be doing in it. Like you have to have an Mm -hmm. idea of when I'm bringing this card in and what situations, what is it going to do for me? Where is it valuable? Because like, you can't just be like me and just be like, well, is Trinosphere good here? Because you have, you have to have a good idea of when it is. Is that what you think you sound like? (laughs) I don't know what I sound like. You should listen to the podcast sometime. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, you know, that's just, I got, I got to be doing other stuff. I got to edit. He's got a really busy life. <laughs> he has to listen to it's, it many times while he edits it, just like you. 
I mean, overall, I think this is awesome. I think it's only adding to the power of Green Tron, like you said, Dave. Um, but it also puts a target on the deck even more than ever before. You know, Tron is everywhere right now. So I'm a huge, I'm a huge sleeve it right now. It, I think it's for this one. I wonder if I'm going to say that my sleeve belief heave rating is not necessarily based on Karn, new Karn Tron, but Karn himself. Because I, I think that sure Karn is, I mean, sorry, Tron's clearly a sleeveable deck, right? It's a, it's a top tier amazing deck. So I think for Karn the Great Creator, sleeve, sleeve, sleeve. I love this card so much. I bought my four copies right away. I'm going to play it in Blue Tron. I'm going to play it in Mono Red Prison. I might even try to throw it in my other decks. Who knows? I love this card. It is so very good. I mean, this is clearly a sleeve it, especially with the way the results are, the way that the, the like Zach said, the way that how often this card is showing up and this package is showing up. I think it's, I think it's super real. Yeah, but in, in your heart, you know it's a heave it for you. I mean, I w- I'm not going to play Tron, so I'm fine. <laughs> Stan, Stan, what do you think? Ban it. Yeah, I mean that's that's yeah yeah. Um, hey, Stan. Yes. Remember how earlier you were talking about what happens to cards that end up in this many different decks with the same package? I have no I memory think, of saying this. Oh, you you were kind of like, what happens? Wasn't me. When Mm. He was like, bro, like, what could even happen? Like, if that many Karns were in one deck? Did you ever think about how many Karns are out there? Was it you on the bathroom floor? You guys ever look at your hands and wonder about all these Karns? <laughs> was it, it wasn't you on the sofa? It wasn't me. Um, I think that those cards become Splinter Twin, by the way, is my take reducing deck construction yeah well and also remember it wasn't only diversity it was that people were just taking the combo package and jamming it into lots of different decks so we had teamer tarmo twin we had grixis twin we had red twin yeah so good so i i mean there is a little bit of potential here i think for that to happen, especially since the entire package that's associated with this is colorless. And that's just wild to me. Alarm bells are definitely going off for me. And I love this card, and I've already purchased mine, so I hope that I have a little more time. And it is very new to the format, and maybe its popularity will die down, and only you know the established decks will run it. But I, I think the writing's sort of on the wall for me at this point. And I, I mean, I think right when I started playing against it, I sent a message to the group chat that I think this card's going to be banned. And it was, oh, it's fine. It's whatever. But I think now that all of us have got to regale in the splendor of our Lord and Creator, we see that mm, death rides a silver horse. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes the sun shines a little too brightly off of someone's metallic skin. Hide. <laughs> it, it, just, it just feels like it's doing too much. I mean, it's just, it's it's super flexible. I mean, wishing is super powerful. It kind of, it just kind of skirts around a few issues. When you combine it with the mana, especially that, that Tron produces or Amulet Titan produces, it just does so much. Yeah, I'm surprised there's not a, a colorless mana pip in the mana cost there. Maybe three and a colorless would have made it a little less degenerate. I mean, I could still run it, so that's very good for me, and so could Tron. But I think it would have less the uh, ubiquitousness that it has now. So who knows, but that's not the world we live in, and it is four mana of any color. Yeah, we'll see. I think that, I mean, I hope that I get mine from Russia before it's banned. <laughs> I probably have like three weeks before it shows up. Stan, what do you, I mean, are you, do you think this encapsulates your feelings about it? or A hundred percent. The card is very powerful. I'm not saying I want it to be banned. I, for one, prefer when cards don't get banned. But we've seen what happens when these things happen. 
So I just think the writing is on the wall. Unless we find really good answers in Modern Horizons or in future sets, I think this is a deck or at least a card that I would be a little nervous about buying into and at least having some awareness that the fun may not last forever. Now you tell me. Do you think it's that card or do you think that just Lattice would be taken away as the the prime toy for uh, causing locks? I feel like with Wizards track history, it'd probably be Lattice first because they tend to ban those cards and not the enabler, but we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, so what's interesting about your question is I think both of those cards are set up to kind of do broken things. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they're not going to ban both, but Karn seems a bit more problematic, whereas Lattice is still a six-mana card that, you know, you have to set up to make it work or do anything useful. Yeah. Yeah, I, I saw a comment on the Modern Magic subreddit that was they don't ban six-mana cards, but I guess there's a first time for everything, right? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I have one last question about new decks of of War of the Spark before we move on. And that is, yes. why didn't nobody choose to play the Neoform combo deck? It looked hard. What do you guys Damn. think about that? I don't want to win turn one. I just want to play a Blood Moon on turn one. Okay. I don't like combo decks. Okay. I also just needed to see what the evolution of one of my favorite tournament decks is. So was I the person who was supposed to play the Neoform combo deck and instead I played Nivmizit? <laughs> is that what happened? <laughs> Probably. I mean, you guys, did you guys play against that deck at all? I played against it once. I mentioned that last week. No, I did not. I played against a couple of Grishel brand decks, but one was just classic Gorio's Vengeance stuff, and then the other one was also classic Gorio's Vengeance stuff, but in a slightly different color combination. No, I didn't see it at all. I played Tenrak and played only aggro decks. Interesting. Yeah, it didn't work out so well. Well... I mean, I don't know what our feelings about that combination are now. It still feels like that is also on the the block to be corrected through some kind of regulation. But it's like when you pull the blanket over your head when you're a kid, so the monsters can't get you. If I don't see it, it or I don't think about it, it can't hurt me. Perfect. I think there's a takeaway from all of our conversations, which is we're good at calling cards. But not only that, but all four decks we talked about are playing with these powerful new planeswalkers. Yeah. Yep. So if people mm. are going to keep doing that, you need to have a plan to deal with planeswalkers. Yeah. I mostly think that, that this discussion today, kind of the flip of that just proved, like we said at the top, how powerful a set full of planeswalkers could be, especially when they tweak the formula for what they could be. So all these add-on abilities that looked like kind of small and inconsequential and like they didn't really do that much when we were reading the spoilers actually have profound effects, I think. Even the ones that seem really subtle, like you can't search your library. Like tons of the decks that are out there right now are running the new Ashiok. Mm -hmm. And it just seems good, you know? Even though you don't want to use the activated ability at all, you just want to use the static. Shuts down a lot of very good decks. I'm seeing uh, even like rock players have it in their sideboard. Do you all think this could lead to a bit more resurgence for Abrupt Decay? Yeah, I think I mean I think Abrupt Decay could be cool. I mean, it, could, it can't take care of Karn the Great Creator, but if control decks are increasingly running a suite of three mana Planeswalkers, then it will really come in handy. Yeah, it's just interesting. I feel like uh, we've really seen a move towards Assassin's Trophy, and that's been less good for me because I run four mana walkers like Chandra and Koth, and 
Replicate does not hit them. So you do trade off a little bit in not being able to blow up four CMC and higher cards, but I wonder if the consistency of hitting those lower cost walkers is worth it. So there you have it, folks. Decks are good. Cards are scary. Play at your own risk. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we are going to wind down with a listener question. Stay with us. So what's in the mailbox this week, Stan? Have you gone down to the end of the path? We have a mailbox now. We have have a Patreon question thread. Yeah, we sure do. And one of the cool things about our Patreon is it's a place for some of our oldest and most loyal fans to come together. And a person that we've mentioned on a previous episode, Hunting Guy from Reddit, turns out his name actually is Hunter in real life, or so he claims, pitched a really good one that people have been asking on Reddit a lot, not just to us, but I think it tends to come up in the modern conversation a lot, which is is now a good time to buy into the format. Well, and he kind of gives a little bit of a context for that, right? Like, there's so many combo decks. There's, you know, there's, you know, he mentions like four or five different newer combo decks or decks that kind of operate like a combo-ish strategy. And so does it, I think he's kind of sort of asking, does it even feel good to be playing modern right now? Like, is modern fun enough to buy into? I think is kind of what he doesn't really say, right? Did you read it that way? I did not read it that way, no. I mean, I, I think a lot of people worry about the cost of entry, which is reasonable because sure. decks it's are high. hundreds of dollars or, you know, years of collections turning into a strategy. Yeah. And for yeah. that reason, I wondered, like, there's never really a good time to buy into modern. You just have to take the plunge and then just start building towards a strategy that you find is enjoyable for you. So I will take a little bit of exception to that. I do think there is one time that it's a very good time to buy into modern, and that is if you're going to buy a, try to buy a, a large swath of the format, any time that fetch lands are being printed in a set is a good time to buy into modern, just kind of by yeah. definition. So anytime you can get those for less than they are right now, um, or when they're on the downswing, that's a good place to start. Because it's really all about, for me, I mean, my biggest recommendation would be think about what mana bases you can get and get access to and then try to build decks around that instead of trying to go the other way around, which is picking a deck and then trying to build it from there. Because I think that'll give you the most um, kind of economic path to a reasonable path to building a deck that is actually competitive or a tier deck. Yeah, but like then you you see what happens when they said, you know, there's not going to be any more Masters sets. We have Modern Horizons coming. It's not going to contain any currently modern legal cards. And fetch, ra- fetch lands go up in price by quite a good amount. Yeah. Because it's just like, when are, when, when are people going to be able to rely on those being printed again? And I think it's kind of something that Hunter gets at in the later part of his question. Is he says, you know, there's so many changes hitting the format right now. You know, we have the London Mulligan potentially. We have Modern Horizons. We have War of the Spark making big changes. Like, do these changes, do, we, do you wait for them to settle out? Or do you kind of ride the uncertainty? Like, what, what's the best time to actually figure out what do I want to play? What cards do I buy? What decks do I buy? So my answer to this question really depends on how often you think you can play modern realistically and where you're playing it. So if you know there's an active modern scene in your town and, you know, in the nearby Tri-County area, whatever, if you know that you can go out there and play modern once a week or every other week consistently, 
consider it. Or if you know you're going to play online and you have time for, you know, a competitive league every week or you're going to sit down and play that big Saturday league they have, consider it. But if you're going to buy a modern deck and it's going to sit there until your friend visits you every three months, reconsider it. So yeah, exactly, exactly. So I, I think if you know you're going to be able to play it and consistently get in reps, buy in. But if you are unsure about the amount of time you can play, really think about it and think about how much that purchase is going to, how much joy it's going to bring you versus anything else. I think Stan, you actually set a pretty good example of like a pretty smart method into buying into modern, which is, you know, you you do it, I think, a little bit more thoughtfully than I do in terms of saying, I'm going to start with this, then I'm going to take the pieces I have here, and I'm going to slowly grow that collection into other decks that, that work, you know, with, with a number of cards I already have. I'm a little emotional, Shane. I feel like this is the nicest thing you've ever said to me. Well, that's kind of sad. It's up there. <laughs> Well, you're you're onto something, and it reminds me of what Dave mentioned earlier with Fetchlands, because a lot of my modern journey as a player and a collector has had to do with the fact that I bought four Scalding Tarn when they are reprinted at Modern Masters, and they were remarkably yeah. cheap. Like people are, might not believe it, like forty yeah, I bucks got them for like forty or less, and now they're like close to a hundred. So they're over a hundred. They're over a hundred. They're five hundred dollars, seven fifty a piece. <laughs> So that that has to do with a lot of like why I tend to play blue red decks and why I've been on Is It Phoenix lately and why I used to play Blue Moon. It's just because that's the land base that's been available to me that I can do a lot of different strategies with. It's actually super similar to me is that the the way that I got started in modern is I bit the bullet and bought f- uh, four Zendikar Scalding Tarns like in 2013 and just kind of went from there. I think uh, this makes me think right now buy two to three of every shock land yes because they are currently in print as dave is shaking his they're head. actually really expensive because they have yeah. they have yeah. demand they have demand from standard yeah. right now so the, the window was missed then <clears throat> the window is missed a little bit or you want you're probably going to want to wait a, yeah just a wait till rotation I, I, I think the answer is waiting till rotation to stock up on shocks because shock lands are like 15 dollars right now yeah, and six months ago right. they were because they, they were see play in standard seven yeah, so everyone's right. talking about buying into mana bases. I think that is a good way to get into modern. But if you're someone who doesn't have a bunch of cash to blow on mana and cards later, I think that's totally cool if you want to buy into a modern deck. But I think you need to really do your research and be really sure about the deck you like. I bought Scred as a whole deck because I knew it was something that interested me. I had played it in Standard. I like Blood Moon, etc. So I knew ahead of time... I. Although I wasn't going to play the deck a ton, it was a good deal, and I knew I was going to like it, and I thought it would was going to continue to be good. So if you're going to drop a good chunk of change on a modern deck, I would at least be aware of the play patterns and know that you like it. Because I think if I had bought into 8-Rack in that moment, I don't know what I'd be doing right now, because I think ultimately I don't like the deck that much. So who knows if I'd still be playing modern even. Yeah, I, I'm on board with you there, Zach. I think people... Don't I think people want to spend money because buying things is fun, but I think in terms of my like fundamental takeaways in terms of like when I, what I tell people who are like I want to buy into modern or hey what should I do with modern it's proxy some cards, and play with your friends, or play online and use like a deck rental service like manatraders dot com still not a sponsor but we all use them and like them. You know, you spend 30 bucks or 35 bucks and in one month you could play a dozen 
different modern decks and have some reps with them. You know, test a bunch of different stuff, play online. You don't have to drop that 1200 bucks on a deck that you're not really sure of. You know, just take your sweet time and you can make a really good decision and get something you're going to like playing for a long time. But, you know, we're, we are, like we've said a couple of times, and I think everybody is starting to acknowledge, you know, we're about to get spoilers from uh, Modern Horizons in a week. Three weeks? No, spoilers start next week. They start next week? Yeah, you're always off on this time frame, dude. I always think it's behind. They start next Sunday, the 20, they start Sunday, the 19th. Oh my goodness. Dang. We, we, will, ha- we, will, have like, we will have like a day and a half for next episode of spoilers. Wow. Well, we'll see how many we actually have to share from that that are worth talking about. But, um, you know, that shift is going to happen right now. And I, I got to say, in the sense that standard sometimes feels unsettled and modern feels very unsettled right now, I think that is fair. Yeah. That feels 100% true, and I think it's mostly because War of the Spark did a lot more than people were anticipating it was going to. Sure. Well, that's our dive down for this week. Let us know what you think about the decks we talked about in our main section, what your tips are on buying into modern. Do you agree with any of our takes? Shoot us a tweet. Let us know on Reddit. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use iTunes, please leave us a rating and review. Also remember to join our Patreon. It's a great way to support the show directly and help shape the Dive Down's future. Check it out at patreon.com slash the Dive Down. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain in something in modern, you can tweet us at the Dive Down, all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you see us on Reddit, feel free to send us a message there as well. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and test new decks! You guys are all paused. Did we lose Shane? We might have lost I him. I think we lost Shane. Did I lose my internet? Hotel internet. It's. I'm shocked that it managed to last oh this God. long. I know. Okay. He paid for the, fa- well, the fast stuff, too. Yeah. I hope. Well, that manager's going to get an earful. <laughs>